You are listening to a sermon from MCA Church. To learn more about our community, head online to mcachurch.ca. Thanks. Do you pray with me? Father, how we long and need to hear you say that we are a child of you. Father, we need to gather together to declare that uh, to you and over ourselves because what you say is true, that we are adopted as your sons and daughters. And there is a sonship when we choose to follow you because you love us. Thank you for that promise. Would we step into that this morning in a greater way? In Jesus' name, amen. amen. You can go ahead and have a seat. Let me just get ready here. Uh, my name is Chris. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, I work pr- mostly with the youth and overseeing the kids' ministry. Uh, I, love, I love that our church believes so strongly in creating environments for our kids and youth to encounter Jesus. Uh, it's such a joy and a delight to serve here and be part of this community. Uh, really, what I'm about to say, we, we've just sung about. Uh, we've just declared that I am a child of God who the sun sets free is free indeed. But the problem is we're going to read in Galatians that the Galatian Christians are turning to something less than And we'll discover as we go along this morning that you and I also turn that way as well. So would you turn with me to Galatians 4, verses 8 to 12. We're continuing in our Galatians series. Uh, This is a passage Keith gave to me, and I'll uh, describe more. He he thought of me when he read it, and I'm not sure how I feel about that yet. But uh, I'll tell you more about that as we go along. Starting in verse 8, we'll go just into the start of verse 12. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those who by nature are not gods. But now that you know God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you are turning back to those weak and miserable forces? Do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? You are observing special days and months and seasons and years. I fear for you that somehow I have wasted my efforts on you. I plead with you, brothers and sisters, become like me, for I became like you. This is the word of the Lord. So I'm an island boy at heart. Spent most of my growing up days on Vancouver Island, moving around. So thankful my parents have retired to a small golf island, and so it's my island in the Pacific to vacation to. Not quite as tropical as you might be picturing, uh, but beautiful nonetheless. We're not so far away from the ocean, so I'm wondering if any of you have ever seen a whale. Have you ever been on a whale watching tour, perhaps on BC ferries or another ferry or a cruise, seen whales? Uh, when I was in my first year at Bible college, we got to do something called salts. 
Some of you may be familiar with it. Some of our high schools uh, take trips down to SALT, Sail and Life Training Society. It's giant tall ships that you get to go be crews on. And I'll never forget the day when a whole pod of porpoises came leaping along and followed our boat for a while. It was so beautiful. The whale, the porpoise, it's one of the greatest sights in the animal kingdom. To go out on a small boat, to wait perhaps for hours, then to see one of these magnificent creatures come to the surface or even leap from the water, it's absolutely breathtaking. I think one of the things that makes these animals so wonderful is that they are free. They are doing exactly what they were created to do. But of course, you might have seen whales somewhere else. Some whales live in captivity. They're incredibly intelligent animals, and they enjoy or seem to enjoy working and playing with humans, showing off in front of an audience. They're kept in aquariums where they are hopefully well looked after, regularly fed and taught to do these remarkable things. Now, we're not here to debate whether that's right or wrong, but it's obvious that not everyone approves of keeping them in captivity, and this is the story of Kiko. Keiko. In 1979, a two-year-old Keiko was captured from his family off the coast of Iceland and sold to a local aquarium. After a few years in Iceland, Keiko was bought by Marineland and sent to Ontario, Canada. In 1985, he made the voyage down to Mexico where he performed daily for the public. And in 1992, Keiko became the star of the movie Free Willy. We're going back a few years. At great expense, after he rose to famedom, the process was began to rehabilitate Keiko to prepare him for release back into the wild. It began with his relocation to Oregon in 1995 to a large pool there composed entirely of real seawater, something he had not tasted since he was captured from the wild. One of the first obvious steps was to learn to eat and catch live fish. He took to it quite easily. In fact, three years later, it was decided that Keiko, now in excellent health, would be transported to his home waters of Iceland to continue in the steps of his rehabilitation. Things were looking up for Keiko, the famous killer whale. In Iceland, Keiko lived in an enclosed pen in a sheltered bay similar to this one on the screen. He began going for walks outside of the pen with his team where he would swim with a boat in the bay outside of the pen. He also underwent training that allowed him the confidence to hunt and forage on his own to rely less on his human caretakers. Keiko slowly but surely became more independent, which was the entire goal and dream of his human team. In 2001, his pen was left open so he could come and go as he pleased. It was the next step of rehabilitation. He began to spend days at sea without human companionship, was observed, since observed spending time in the company of fellow whales. But sadly, he always returned to his pen. 
Even after up to 10 days at sea, still he returned to the pen, and the vets, the human team around him, discovered after extracting samples from his stomach that he had failed to eat. There was worry for Keiko. But then Keiko set off on a journey all on his own. He traveled some 1,000 miles to, to Norway, and it looked like what once had been only a dream had become a reality. Keiko the killer whale had finally been set free. But if you know the story, you know it doesn't end there. Sadly, in Norway, he faced a lot of human interaction. In fact, he sought out human interaction. And soon he followed a fishing vessel into a bay and once again voluntarily submitted himself to the human interaction with which he had spent so much of his life growing accustomed to. Eventually this led to them having to pen in Keiko again, albeit in an open ocean pen. But a year after his failed migration, Keiko died at the age of 26 or 27 as a result of pneumonia. So in some regards, you have the free Keiko campaign as a raging success. It took the least healthy captive orca in the world and brought him back to full health. It succeeded in transitioning Keiko from a horribly inadequate tank in Mexico to a netted off bay pen in Iceland and later Norway, easily 1,000 times the size of the largest pen currently in existence. But if you do a quick Google search, you'll find there are people on both sides of the argument and asking, was Keiko really free? When a whale refuses to leave the comforts and familiarity of its pen, when a whale repeatedly chooses an artificial life with human beings as opposed to a life of freedom in the environment he was made for, was it a better life? Yes. But one spent getting just a glimpse of the life he was created for. Keiko the whale spent the latter part of his life responding to the echoing lie that life was better in captivity. Even after all the expense, all the human resources put into the free Keiko campaign, the whale simply couldn't shake the belief that life was better in captivity. Now, if you know your Bible at all, what does that sound like? How does that sound familiar? This echoing desire to return to the way things used to be, to go back, to return to the comfort and security, the familiar, a longing for the former life of structure and predictability, where your daily needs, the provisions that sustain you, are provided by another. It's the story of the children of Israel. As they left the comfort and familiarity of Egypt and headed out into the unknown that God had prepared for them. So let's think about what their life was like in Egypt. In Egypt, they were provided for. Not lavishly, but reliably. In Egypt, they woke up each day knowing what the day was going to look like. It was reliable, predictable. Things had always been a certain way and were sure to continue in that way. In Egypt, things were familiar. One could even say that they were comfortable. 
And so when the children of Israel came out of slavery in Egypt, under the leadership of Moses, and ahead of them loomed a long journey into an unknown future, they rebelled. They argued to return to Egypt and even declared that they missed their former life of slavery and captivity. It's not so difficult to see how the children of Israel came that way if you pause and consider for a moment. They didn't know where the next meal was coming from. When they got a meal, they quickly grew tired of it. The the Egyptians pursuing and threatening to attack them. They looked ahead to the Canaanites who defended the promised land and were filled with fear. So again and again, the cry went up. Why did we leave Egypt? We were better off as slaves and following this crazy dream of a promised land and this dreamer, Moses. Let's look at a couple passages. Exodus 14, 11. They said to Moses, was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert to die? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone. Let us serve the Egyptians. It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. Chapter 16, the Israelites said to them, if only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. But you have brought us out into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. Chapter 17, but the people were thirsty for water there, and they grumbled against Moses. They said, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to make us and our children and livestock die of thirst? Jumping over to Numbers 14. That night, all the members of the community raised their voices and wept aloud. All the Israelites grumbled against Moses and Aaron, and the whole assembly said to them, If only we had died in Egypt or in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us to this land only to let us fall by the sword? Our wives and children will be taken as plunder. Wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to each other, We should choose a leader and go back to Egypt. The pull of Egypt that resided in the hearts and minds of the children of Israel was like a magnetic force threatening to draw them back into captivity. They simply couldn't shake the lie that life was better in captivity. And do not forget the lengths that God went to to bring them out of this captivity. Israel's story was the story of Keiko. Isn't it sad how quickly a life of slavery, a life of captivity, becomes the very comforting thing that we long to return to? We see it over and over again through Scripture. If I'm being honest, I can see it time and again in my own life. This picture of the children of Israel's journey of desiring to go back to Egypt, back to captivity, lies behind Paul's impassioned appeal in this passage. The Galatian Christians, they've come out of their Egypt, out of being held captive to pagan God worship. They've been set free at a great cost, redeemed by the action of the one true God. But now... It seems as though they've had a look at the freedom gifted to them. And for some reason, they keep choosing captivity. 
Don't get me wrong, they, they surely like the taste of freedom they've experienced, but for some reason they're struggling with how to live into it. They are, Paul declares, choosing to go back where they had come from, back to the old pagan gods they had worshipped before they were set free by the living God. That's always sad and astonishing when we see that in the lives of people around us, isn't it? People who seem to have encountered Jesus, to have their lives radically transformed by his love and then return to former ways. But pagan worship? It seems pretty crazy to think of someone returning to worshiping their pagan gods after encountering the living Jesus. But if you've been tracking with us through Galatians, you might be wondering something right about now. Returning to pagan worship or returning to the Jewish laws? What's going on here? We know from Keith's sermon last week that the Galatian Christians aren't returning to pagan gods. They're seeking to become like the Jews. The worst thing the Galatian Christians can be accused of is seeking to live in step with the way the Jews had lived, in fact, sought to honor God for generations. So what is Paul all of a sudden doing here, taking things to the next step of saying, you're returning to pagan worship? There's a point he's trying to make. See, we know in Paul's writing, and especially here in Galatians, that Paul likes to talk in circles. You might think this whole Galatians series is really just the same sermon done by different people. First Keith, then Brendan, then Keith, then Chris. It's starting to sound awfully familiar by now, and hopefully it is. Because we're trying to get something into our heads, into our hearts, and live it out. He's going to, Paul, he's going to come at things from different angles till he's certain that he's got his point across. We saw last week, we were in the latter half of chapter 3, where Paul was calling the Jewish law a curse. Keith created this masterful imagery of the treasure hunt, or the treasure map, where you've been gifted a map, and it, it, it begins to dictate your every step. Of course it does. There's a treasure to be found. There's a goal in mind. It's leading you along your way as you live your life. But then you find the treasure. You've arrived. You've got it. How foolish it would be to go back and live by the map. It's already done what it was created to do. You found the treasure. Why are you still walking in step with the map? Live your life with the treasure. How foolish it would be to return to live by the map. But here, Paul is going to take things even a step further than he did in chapter 3. Now he's not just calling the law a curse, but that it's equal to slavery, to captivity, and to pagan worship. It's his imagery that would have been very familiar to his first audience. Right? Slavery. If you were a Roman, you were free. But if not, you were likely a servant. This is the world they lived in. Pagan worship, temples dotted the hills, temples dotted every street corner, places of worship. It was all around them. Clearly, as far as Paul is concerned, for Christ followers to turn to any degree of trying to earn their salvation by adhering to the law is complete and utter foolishness. 
on the same level as pagan worship. Have you gotten the point now? Has he shocked you enough with what he's writing for you to change your pattern, to step out of the comfort and the familiar, even though it's unknown? Now, I think it's important to consider the voice with which Paul wrote these shocking things. We can hear different voices when we read scripture, and I think it's important to consider what the original author, how he may have been saying the things. As I was studying, uh, scholars by and large agree that up until this point in Galatians, Paul, he's been using very heady theological arguments. He's trying to get something into the head of the readers. But here in chapter four, things are a little different. You could put it this way. Up until now, he's been using his professor voice. But now he's whipping out the dad voice. Okay, so let me read it again and see how you hear it. I fear for you that somehow I have wasted my efforts on you. I plead with you, brothers and sisters, become like me, for I became like you. If ever there is a moment for a pastor, teacher to, to find the stool, to sit back on their stool, to, if they're wearing glasses, take their glasses off and put it on the stand, to, to rub their forehead a little bit with a pregnant pause. Go, oh, you're not getting it. Oh, how I wish you could understand and live into this. That is the voice Paul is using here. Parents, can you hear yourself in this? I can. Can you hear your parents in this? I am so disappointed. You know better. With all of the fatherly love he can bring into writing this letter, Paul is pleading with the Galatian Christians saying, there is a better way. Don't turn aside. So why? Why would they choose captivity if they had tasted of a better way? Well, we need to turn our, that question on ourselves. Why do any of us choose captivity? Why do you and I, who have full access to freedom in Christ, keep returning to live in captivity? Returning to live under a religious system rather than to dance in the freedom awarded to us in Christ. Well, in their culture, there was a small segment of very strong, loud voices saying, this is what you have to do in order to belong. And some of the Gentile Galatians didn't know any better. So out of a desire to belong, were voluntarily submitting their lives to the captivity of the Jewish law. So that's my first idea of why. Sometimes we choose captivity because we think it's the only option. We think that we have to. Sometimes in the church, we've gotten the whole uh, belong, believe, behave in different orders. We've said in order to belong, you need to believe this, 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 and behave in step with this, 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 before you belong. 
I'm so thankful for a church and the environments we're creating in kids and youth that say right off the bat, you belong. You matter. Come along for this journey. Let's discover together what it means to believe and have that shape how we live our lives. Perhaps, sometimes, we choose captivity because it's easier to stick with what's familiar and comfortable over what's new and unknown. We just don't know how to live life in freedom. We've never been shown a better way. We've never been taught from Scripture of what true Christian freedom actually means and had it modeled for us. Be careful who you look to and model your life after. Who are the trusted Jesus followers that you are following that demonstrate a freedom from legalism? And how are you going to follow in their steps? Or perhaps we choose captivity because we like the measuring stick. There are some people who just need the report card in order to know how they measure up in God's eyes. And often, because I am that person, I don't just want to know my report card, but everybody else's. Because then I can hold up mine, and I can hold up yours, and say, God, look at me. I must be good with you, because look at me. It's an exhausting way to live. And I think what's underneath all of this, underneath all of these different reasons of why we might possibly return to captivity, is because we choose captivity out of fear. We get a glimpse of what freedom will require of us, that it forces us to open up our hands and trust our salvation to another person. That instead of having things that I can point to, I need to trust that the Savior, Jesus, has done it all. That I can't do anything more, and now I need to live the rest of my life with those same open hands in every area of life, and that's just scary. That involves so much giving up of control that it terrifies us. So consciously or not, we, we choose to go back to captivity because it's easier, it's familiar, it's, dare I say, comfortable, because there's things I can point to to say, God, look at what I've done. So then how does this actually look in our lives? If that's why, well, what? What do we turn to that threaten to take us captive? There's a long list, but there's really just three things. Two I'm going to touch on really quickly. Uh, three things that I think we turn to that are forms of captivity. The first is really obvious, addictions. And for some of us, these are glaring and the obvious ones. And there's plenty of people in our faith family with those as a part of their story. And, and for you, you walk daily the struggle to stay away from returning to those ways of life. It's the reality you live in. But addictions can take the forms that aren't so obvious, too. What do you turn to when you're stressed and emotionally spent? 
What do you turn to in order to escape or to cope when everything feels like too much? Maybe there's something you've been turning to over the last couple of years to deal with the stress of the global pandemic. One study, I don't know if I believe it or not, indicates 25% of people are drinking more alcohol during the pandemic. I fear that might be a little low. Maybe you don't see it as an addiction, but you've been turning to something to cope with the stress of these last couple of years. Addictions, they're ugly beasts, and we all have things we turn to when the pressure is turned up. Second, patterns of sin. It's one of the other obvious ones. It's so similar to addictions, but I felt important to separate it. What sin do you feel the echoes of most in your life beckoning you to return to? Perhaps it was a pattern of sin from before you even came to encounter the living Jesus. Or perhaps as you grew and matured in your relationship with him, things came to light that he wanted to redeem. That he wanted to show you a different way, a better way. We are all in the process of being made more and more into the image of our Heavenly Father. We're not perfect. So what's your go-to pattern of sin that you feel most drawn to returning to? Now that's just two, but I want to land on the third because I don't want to drift too far from our passage this morning. See, Paul here is talking about legalistic religion as the captivity that threatens to enslave us. Our passage this morning leaves little room to escape the question. What are the things we turn to that are misguided attempts to please our Heavenly Father? For the Galatian Christians, we read this, that it was observing special days and months and seasons and years. So what, what exactly is that that Paul's talking about? Well, he's referring to things such as keeping the Sabbath and to the many festivals that the Jewish people observe. So it's important to remember as you search your own life for those misguided attempts to please God that these days and seasons are all good things. In fact, they're beautiful gifts. Take Sabbath, for example. I don't know how many of you have the regular practice of engaging in a Sabbath ritual, of setting aside one day a week to rest, to play, to pray. I had a good friend who modeled for me what it looks like for him, even with young kids, the chaos of young kids, to engage in a day of rest and play and pray. And it's really been an anchoring point for my family throughout the pandemic. As the weeks go by, this routine that we start at dinner time on Friday and spend the whole day Saturday doing where we try to play together as a family and we pray. Imagine what your life could look like if you set aside a day each week. Imagine starting each week from a posture of God, this week ahead, it's yours. Everything that's in it, everything that's going to be done, everything that needs to be done, everything that's going to happen. I'm going to take a break from my hurriedness and trust this week ahead to you. Even though the, the list is full, the to-do list is full, the projects are many, you are God, I am not, so I'm going to rest and trust in you. 
What a gift that could be. But if you take that gift and for one second think that by observing Sabbath you're checking a box that makes, forces God's hand to love you more, you are so mistaken. Sometimes the things that enslave us are so close to the good that God created us for. They're like a dirty mirror reflecting a poor image of the freedom that Christ died to gift us and created us to live into. And I can't help but thinking of the picture of Keiko in his penned-in bay, a calm bay, a beautiful bay, but, but nets of the ocean water being able to come and go through the nets, that taste of life, of freedom, the ocean life being able to crawl underneath, but yet it's just a glimpse of the freedom he was created for. You and I settle and return to captivity all too often. We settle for just a taste of the freedom we were created for. So the invitation this morning is like the opportunity gifted to Keiko is to jump out of the familiar and the comfortable and to embrace the vast ocean that you were created for even with all of its unknown. The call is to come out of captivity and dive into the freedom that God has created us for and the only way to do this, the only way is by surrendering fully open-handed to the saving work of Jesus. Isaiah 64, verse 6, puts so bluntly the position you and I all find ourselves. All of us have become like someone who is unclean. All the good things we do are like dirty rags to you, to you, God. All of us are like leaves that have dried up. Our sins sweep us away like the wind but you have to inject a but God into that. It's a fantastic uh, exercise to study the but God moments in the scriptures. Whether it actually says but God or you take a, chapter, a passage like Isaiah 64, 6 and say, if that's where I am, but what has God done? 2 Corinthians 5, 21, but God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. John 8, 26, but if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. John 10, 10, but I have come that they may have life and life to the full, life abundant. And as we'll study shortly in Galatians 5, but it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Freedom, life abundant, the life we were created for. So what are these waters? What is this freedom we are called to dive fully into? Well, as I just read Galatians 5, that's obviously coming up still. We're going to dive more fully into just exactly what Christian freedom is is and we are called to live into. But first, there are two things that I want to hint at. And I think one is the a guide rail on the side of the road. And the second is the lines right in the middle of the road to call us to stay close to. 
So first the guardrail. First the guardrail. Freedom in Christ is so far from the individualistic pursuit of freedom and rights that we most often think of in North America today. I was blown away by this thought as I studied, as I look at the landscape of our world today. When Jesus entered the scene and took on human flesh, they were expecting a warrior king. They were looking at the oppression by the Romans and saying, our warrior king will come to free us from all of that. He will come in riding on a horse with sword blazing and put things to right again. Then we will have freedom. Jesus did none of that. There was a greater freedom that mattered. There was a freedom that Jesus' people under the law were not able to attain and that he came to accomplish on the cross for you and for me and for all people. A freedom that is wholly focused on others and wrapped in love. So if that's the guardrail, how do we stick to the middle of the road? Freedom is found when we discover there is nothing I can do to make God love me more, there is nothing I can do to make God love me less. And this is my fatherly moment like Paul, speaking to myself, saying, oh, if only I could get this deep into my core, that there is nothing I can do, that the faucet of his love is already turned so fully on that there is nothing I can do to turn it up or turn it down. It is just full on. I was away this past weekend at a ordination retreat in the Alliance, our denomination. Uh, there's a process to be ordained, two-year journey, significant amount of work to it, including a number of retreats in the Lower Mainland, and there's lots of uh, theology seminars, and our presenter uh, said this. It worried me at first. God has no potential. God has no potential. See, the soup you and I live in every day is one of constant movement, forward, backward, up, left, right, growth towards health, growth in a job, gaining this, filling our toolbox, doing this, doing that, losing this, losing that. There is constant potential for change in all directions. But when it comes to God, he fully is. When it comes to God's love, there is no potential. It's already fully on. The faucet of his love cannot be turned up or down towards you. You are his child and he loves you dearly. And for once, a short little quick saying of, there's nothing God can do to love you more or nothing you can do to make God love you less, gets it so right. Gets it so, so right. If only we could learn to swim in that water, then I believe we would be wholly free. When we 
wrestle with the truth of who God is and allow it to stretch our brains and blow up our understanding of who God is, that should draw us into worship. For when we truly get a picture of who we are, that even my best efforts to please God are still dirty rags, as Isaiah writes. But God came that we may have life and life to the full. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. Whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. Life abundant that starts now. That draws us to the feet and the presence of Jesus. To worship him because he is worthy of all our praise. So allow that to draw you into worship as we sing one last, one last song together. Let me pray as the worship team comes up. Father, oh, Father, forgive us for our turning and returning to our own attempts to please you. And even knowing that we will in all likelihood, continue to turn, still you love us and will always love us and that doesn't grow or decrease, that blows me away. Thank you for loving me. Thank you for loving us. You are so worthy of our praise. In Jesus' name, amen.